0: Way back in the spring, when we started this series in Genesis, one of the things I said was, uh, we're not going through Genesis in kind of a traditional way, which is verse by verse, story by story, narrative by narrative, but rather what we're going to do is use Genesis as a springboard to talk about a variety of different topics. And so I wanted simply to remind you of that this morning. It's been a long time since I've said that, but I want to remind you of that because this really is a, a perfect example of how Genesis gives us a, a topic with which to wrestle. Uh, And this morning's is a challenging topic. It is the grieving heart of God. And so uh, as we skip ahead, we were in Genesis 4 last week, as we skip ahead to Genesis 6 and spend two weeks uh, with Noah, this morning we're going to consider God's reaction to sin and uh, whether or not that should be our reaction. And if so, what we can learn uh, from this scenario in which uh, we uh, we see some insight. Uh, into the heart of God in ways that we don't always see uh, in other places in Scripture. So, so we're going to continue on this topical theme, so to speak. Uh, here's the question for the morning as we as we begin: uh, Why is the church? When I say church, I mean the kind of the, the church big picture. Okay, uh, folks who call themselves Christians. Why is the church's knee jerk reaction to human catastrophe typically self righteous, judgmental? Why is the church's knee-jerk reaction to human catastrophe when something goes terribly wrong? Why is our knee-jerk reaction to that uh, a self-righteous judgment? Now, I'm going to give you three examples of this to make the point, which, which I think make them for me. I don't think I'll have to, to convince you, take too much time to convince you. I think it will, will begin to make sense to you pretty quickly. Uh, the first one is this. In the late 1970s and the early 1980s, uh, when the HIV-AIDS uh, epidemic began to uh, spread across the United States, and our culture began to be uh, infected with that virus. Uh, much of that that virus began its work uh, within the gay community. What was the Christian, what was the church's reaction? As I recall, and as I've gone back and, and read articles about that, there was a self-righteous judgment. Well, those people out there are living the wrong way, and so God is judging them. And we kind of folded our arms and instead of offering grace, instead of offering care, instead of, of approaching it in a, in a compassionate way, uh, we, we approached it, we, again, the kind of the Christian community, approached it in a very judgmental way so that to this day, some you know, almost 30 years later, the Christian community is basically held in great disdain uh, within the gay community, mostly because of our reaction. Second example I would give you would be 9-11. I heard preachers say after the 9-11 attacks happened, this is God bringing judgment on America for America leaving its moral foundations, for America leaving it, it, its spiritual underpinnings, and this is God's judgment. The third example I'll give you is uh, Hurricane Katrina. A few years hit New Orleans. anybody who's been in New Orleans, been to the French Quarter, knows it's kind of a seedy uh, place with uh, with much of what is wrong with, with our world. Uh, and so when that hurricane hit, a lot of people said, well, see, God's just judging New Orleans. Now, friends, I got to tell you, I've been in New Orleans twice since Katrina, okay? And I've been in the French Quarter twice since Katrina. If that was God's judgment, God has really bad aim because the French Quarter's in really good shape. So maybe it was God's judgment and he just missed. Maybe he shot wide, so to speak. You see, my tongue is firmly embedded in my cheek, <laughs> Why is it, though, that people who claim to be disciples of Jesus have such a self-righteousness about us that cause us, when we see human catastrophe, not to respond with grace, not to respond with compassion, but to respond with self-righteousness? I can't tell you whether or not 9-11 was or wasn't. God's partial judgment on America. I have absolutely no idea. Scripture doesn't speak to that. I wouldn't even begin to try to answer that question. I think it's a waste of time. I can begin to tell you what Katrina was all about in the mind of God. Scripture doesn't say it, so I'm not gonna spend my time trying to figure that out. It's pointless. My question for us this morning is what Scripture says about the heart of God and whether or not that heart has made its way into my life so that so that my reaction and your reaction as folks who call ourselves disciples of Jesus are not concerned about so much why something happened, but rather concerned about our own response. And we turn our backs on this this gleeful smugness, so to speak. And we emotionally engage with the world around us for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I think we need to see out of Genesis chapter six this morning. I'm just gonna, gonna take this apart in two ways. I'm going to talk about sin and its ramifications, and I'm going to talk about God's response. So let's look at sin, and my point is simply going to be this. Sin leads to self-destruction. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man, was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. The last time in Genesis where we saw uh, saw that phrase, the Lord saw or God saw, was way back in chapter 1, during the creation. And God saw what he had made, and behold, it was good. And God saw what he made, and behold, it was good. And we come to the, 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 the peak of creation, and man has been created. Humanity is now uh, placed on planet Earth. And God saw everything that he has made, and behold, it was very good. My, how far we've come in just a few short chapters. Now, mankind is not defined as being created in the image of God. Mankind is not identified by the intrinsic goodness that came from our Creator, but mankind is now described as wicked. That is the word that God uses to define where mankind has come. Much of what was being made in God's image has now been lost. And look at the, este- the extent of this wickedness. It is both pervasive and it is also persistent. It says this that he looked at the wickedness of man. It was great that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, every intention, man's every thought is it's pervasive. Every time man turns around, he's thinking the wrong way, he's motivated by the wrong motives he he's he's put into action in the in the activity of his life for all the wrong reasons this is pervasive it's touched every corner of man's thought life every intention man has is what only evil continually it's persistent it happens all of the time it happens every time this evil uh, never stops uh, one of the uh, Christmas movies that I like to watch, uh, folks know that I that I'm a movie buff. That know me and know that I enjoy movies, and I, you learn a lot when when I think about our culture when you watch movies. But uh, one of the movies I like to watch at Christmas time is called Trapped in Paradise, and it's not one of those uh, movies that that a lot of folks know about. It certainly isn't anything like It's a Wonderful Life. It's actually kind of a kind of a different scenario. And if you're uh, you probably ought to be 16 years old to watch that movie. I always want to give you know kind of parameters, good parameters for that. But in Trapped in Paradise, Dana Carvey, who's a comedian, plays. Uh, uh, plays this character named Alvin Furpo. And Alvin Furpo is part of a little criminal family of three brothers, and Alvin is a kleptomaniac. Alvin steals everything. He wears a huge coat. I mean he he kind of walking you know, like a little kid when your mom you know, dressed you up so you got in the snow and you could hardly move. He has that that big coat on. And anytime he sees something, he snatches it. Even when he has money in his pocket, he could pay for it. He still is compelled to steal it. And throughout the movie, you know, a character will ask him for something, uh a really obscure, really odd thing. Somebody needed a, a ski mask at one point in the in the movie, and he reaches and he goes, Oh, you want a ski mask? And he pulls out three of them. I mean he just he can't help himself. He just takes everything. That's a description that God is giving of the pervasiveness of man's wickedness. It's almost as if it can't stop. It can't be controlled. And look at the outcome in verses 12 and 13. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The earth is filled with violence through them. God is saying here that that the end result of rejecting him is hostility, not just towards God, not just, you know what, God, I don't wanna have anything to do with you. I'm gonna go my own way and do my own thing. But hostility towards our fellow man and a brutality That comes along with rejecting God. There's a callous harm of others. The earth was filled with violence. When man rejected a relationship with God, he did great harm to himself. Therefore, sin leads to self-destruction. Now you say, you know what, Tom? This is a primeval story. I mean, this happened thousands upon thousands of years ago. And don't you know that man is improving? Don't you know that humanity is actually getting better? Well, I want to do a little bit of a, of a scriptural history lesson and then a little bit of a, of a modern history lesson to, uh, to, to push back on that thought process. Just a quick, quick journey through about three years of, of, of history from, from Noah going forward. In the Old Testament, the couple of opinions that were rendered by people who were observing their culture. The prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Uh, David writes in Psalm 5, There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. David writes again in chapter 14 of the Psalms, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. I'm not going to put these passages on the screen, but I did a quick study this week of Jesus's observations about his culture, the people with whom he he rubbed uh, elbows, so to speak. What was his opinion of mankind now uh, well after, you know, about, about 600 years after the prophet Jeremiah? Maybe things have gotten better by then. He talked about man as being a corrupt, like a tree that is bound to produce corrupt fruit. He talked about man as being evil. You being evil, Jesus says. You evil and adulterous generation. Or again, this wicked generation are quotes that Jesus offered. He made a startling statement that out of the heart proceed murders, adulteries, evil thoughts, things of that kind. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher, Jesus said, no one is good but God alone. Jesus compared the men of his age, even the, the religious leaders of his country, to wicked servants who tried to kill the owners uh, of the vineyard, tried to kill his son so that they could have take the vineyard by force. He saw a man's unwillingness to respond to grace. You will not come. You have no love of God. You will not receive me. You believe not. The world's works are evil. None of you keeps the law. You shall die in your sins. You are from beneath. Your father is the devil who is a murderer and a liar. And then the apostle John writes in his first gospel, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus obviously had an opinion of man that represents and reflects what was said all the way back in Genesis chapter six. And then Paul sums it all up. The apostle writes this, "'None is righteous, no, not one. "'No one understands, no one seeks for God. "'All have turned aside. "'Together they have become worthless. "'No one does good, not even one. "'Their throat is an open grave. "'They use their tongues to deceive. "'The venom of asps is under their lips. "'Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. "'Their feet are swift to shed blood, "'and their paths are ruin and misery. "'In the way of peace they have not known. "'There's no fear of God before their eyes. (laughs) "'The picture isn't getting any better, friends.' You say, well, Tom, you've looked at way back in primeval history, now you've looked at ancient history, but, but we're not like them. After all, we're people that are a product of the enlightenment. For the last couple hundred years, we recent history... We've learned the lessons of the enlightenment that that man's reason is supreme and that we can with enough education, with enough goodwill, we really can't figure it out because we really are basically good inside and we really are wise enough to solve these problems on our own apart from God. Let me simply remind you where the enlightenment has taken this world. Two world wars, the almost annihilation of 6 million Jews in Europe and 20 million Russians, Mass genocide, mass murders, unchecked corporate greed that is destroying the financial fabric of our culture, destroying life in the womb by the millions. The Enlightenment has brought us names and images such as Columbine, 9-11, the Virginia Tech shootings, suicide bombers, and yes, even in our own backyard of sleepy little Kirkwood, the City Hall shootings of a year and a half ago. And then this week, you open your newspaper. If you're like me, you don't open an actual newspaper anymore. You, you look at the news headlines on the internet. You hear about Philip and Nancy Garrido, who 18 years ago kidnapped an 11-year-old girl. J.C. Dugar kept her in absolute confinement for 18 years. Fathered two children through her. Friends, I don't even want to talk about this. I don't even want to talk about how sick this is. And this goes on all the time in our culture. And you want to tell me that the enlightenment has made this a better place to live? You want to suggest that mankind with enough education and enough do-good mentality could figure it all out and can make the planet a better place to live? I'm sorry. But only the galactically naive would argue that man is intrinsically good and suggest that the Bible's picture of humanity is inaccurate. Friends, this world is a mess. It has been. And it continues to be to this day. And sin leads to our own self-destruction. What is God's response? <laughs> the Creator. You know, He's saying this is my Father's world. All that He shines through all that's fair. How does God respond to this ugliness in which we persist because we reject Him? Well, I want to start in verse 6 with a very rare look into the heart of God. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man out of the earth and it grieved him to his heart. I've been wrestling all week with this, this language, grieved him to his heart because I wanted to be able to come to you this morning with a very good and healthy explanation and, I, and I'm here to tell you that I, that I can't do it justice. Uh, every commentator I read this week on this passage basically kind of gets to those through three or four words and kind of does a right turn, a left turn and then goes back down the road. Uh, they tend to avoid even commenting on this particular phrase. So I'm not sure that I'll be able to do it justice or be able to explain it to you, but I'm going to suggest that you simply take it for face value. Take it for what it says in light or in the context of all, but I'm going to suggest that you simply take it for face value. Take it for what it says in light or in the context of all of scripture. God doesn't grieve as you grieve or as I grieve. Think about the moments of grief in your life. Think about those moments when, when the tears come, when the heartache happens. What's going on in our lives? Well, it seems to me that we have some unanswered questions. Why did that have to happen the way it happened? Uh, one of the things that, that uh, Doug mentioned last week in talking about signing up for community groups, he said, you know, you're gonna have struggles in your life. You're gonna have challenges in your life. You're gonna have some crisis and disaster and you don't get to pick when that comes. Uh, that, that stood out to me when he said that. And that's typically grieving. I, I didn't get to pick the, the moment of, that this would happen. I wouldn't have set it up this way. Why did it have to happen this way? Or we have regrets. If only I had done this instead of that, maybe it wouldn't have worked out the way it did. Or perhaps we have fears. Something happens to someone that we love and that is close to us, and we grieve not only for them, but we begin to feel vulnerable on ourselves and say, could that happened to me as well. God doesn't grieve in any of those ways because God is not restricted by time or by space or by circumstance. God is above all of that. And still in his lordship, in his sovereignty and understanding the beginning from the end and knowing everything that was going to happen in between when God looked at the mess man had made of this earth, it grieved him to his heart which says to me that God's grief is much more profound than mine. My grief is limited to my circumstances. I can feel sorry for you. I, I can grieve to a certain extent uh, alongside with you. Uh, Liz Hobbs' father passed away last week. A lot of you know Alan and Liz Hobbs in our congregation, and, and several of us went to the funeral yesterday, and I grieved for them. But then I kind of went on with the rest of my day and and as time goes by, their grieving will subside and they'll get back to a little bit more of a normal life. I'm not downplaying it. I'm just saying that, that that it's limited in scope. God's isn't. God sees it all. The sin that was on the planet several thousand years ago is still the sin that's on the planet today. And God looks into every heart and to every human emotion into every one of our, our lives and every life of everybody that's ever walked on the planet. And he has to carry that burden of grief with him. Not in a human form, not in a human fashion. It does not in any way suppress his sovereignty. But in some mysterious way, which I cannot explain to you, the heart of God is grieved Perhaps perhaps the best way to explain it, although even this explanation doesn't do it justice, maybe it's like a parent with a wayward child who can't force a change of heart but simply sits in a profound sorrow. You know, a lot of you guys brought your kids to church this morning. If your mom and dad brought you to church this morning, I'm going to tell you why they brought you to church. Because they love you and they want you to know Jesus, but they can't force that on you. They can't make you love Jesus. You're the only one that can decide and understand that for yourself. But they bring you to places like this and to Sunday school, other Sundays, because they want you to know that message. They want you to know that God loves you. But at the end, you have to ultimately make that decision. And if you decide not to love Jesus, your parents will still love you. They will always accept you. You will always belong to them, but it will break their heart. It will cause them grief because they want only the best for you. Again, that doesn't do it justice because it puts human limitations on it. But in some profound way, the heart of God is filled with sorrow and pain over man's evil. God's response doesn't stop there. It also goes to judgment. Look at verse 7 and then verse 13. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. And then later on when God's having a conversation with Noah, God says, I've determined to make an end to all flesh. God's righteous judgment against man's rebellion. God is heartbroken over sin, but he is also righteously indignant against it. It is an offense to God. And somehow he can hold both of those emotions perfectly in his sovereign hands. He can weep, in a sense, over the sin of man, and yet he can say, it will not win the day. There will be a judgment. There will be accountability for man's actions and attitudes. Man's wickedness knows no boundaries. He is destroying himself. I'm going to put an end to this mayhem. I hear no joy in the voice of God. Some people say, you know, God, God, you know, he he takes delight uh, when when somebody who's bad, he gets to get them. And gosh, this has got to make him feel good. No, not at all. There's no delight in God's voice. There's no joy in this. But there is a resoluteness that he will not allow sin to stand. So there is a judgment that must be rendered, but it doesn't stop with judgment. And see, that's my problem with us. That's my problem with me. That's my problem with kind of the church in general is that we get to that judgment place and we kind of stop there. And we say, yeah, see, didn't they deserve it? It doesn't stop there. Look at verses eight and nine. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That that little two words, but Noah. (laughs) There's still one guy that believes. There's still one person that is a person of faith. There's still one person that says, I know that God is a creator. I know that he loves me. I know that he's, that he is going to care for me and I'm going to put my trust in him. I'm not going to reject him. I'm not going to to have every part of my heart be wicked and evil. I'm going to, I'm going to love God. I'm going to follow him because I know that he loves me. And notice how Noah is described in this passage. He was a righteous man and blameless in his generation. Here's what you need to understand about this in the Hebrew. When you you see the word righteous used to describe a person in the Old Testament, it's talking about their vertical relationship with God, okay? What it's saying is that Noah had faith in God. You can go and read about it in Hebrews chapter 11 if you'd like to. But it means that, that Noah trusted in God. He, he believed in him. He had faith. Righteous isn't talking about Noah's actions there. It's talking about his heart attitude. But then it goes on to say that he was a blameless person in his generation. Blameless is horizontal. Blameless means he loved his neighbor as himself. It means that, that he treated others the way God would have him treat others. Last week we said sin is not static. It is dynamic. It's going to find its way working itself out in your life. The same is true about the character of God. When you are a righteous person, not based on what you do, but when you love God because he first loved you, that also is going to find a way to work itself out in your life. And so Noah actually had compassion and care for the very people who were rebelling against God. That's the difference between me and Noah. And I'm afraid that's the difference between Noah and a great number in the church of Jesus Christ today. 2 Peter 2:5 is a fairly obscure verse. I encourage you to go and look at it. 2 Peter 2:5 is talking about Noah, and Peter says this. Peter said Noah was and in quote a herald of righteousness. A herald is someone who proclaims. I'm I'm a herald on uh, my middle name's Harold too, so it's a little pun there. Uh, but but I am I am a preacher, I am a, I'm a proclaimer. Uh, of of righteousness. I, I'm someone who stands up and says, here's what I think the Lord says. Did you know that Jesus loves you? Did you know that he died on the cross? Did you know you can put your faith in him? Are you growing in your faith? Are you, are you, are you growing in your knowledge and love for Jesus? That, that's someone who's proclaiming. Peter doesn't describe Noah as a builder of the ark. Peter describes Noah as a preacher of God's word. Who was Noah preaching to? Not the two by two animals that came into the ark. I'm not quite sure how this became a child's story, by the way. The whole world gets wiped out, and it's a child's story. Something not right about that, but I digress. Noah was preaching to the people around him who laughed at him and mocked him, thought he was an idiot, said, hey, no, you're building an ark in a desert. Have you lost your mind? God's not gonna judge us. And Noah, for hundreds of years, loved those people enough to proclaim the word of God to them. Because you see, grief has to move you to some place. And if it's going to move you someplace by God's will, it's going to move you to grace. Look at verse 14. Last little phrase here in the morning. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Wow, that's a, doesn't that just compel you? Doesn't that just, doesn't that just do some good to your, to your heart and to your soul? You know, we kind of knew that was coming. But see this, that to Noah and through Noah, God would extend grace. God says it's not going to end here with mankind's rebellion. I'm not gonna let sin win the day. I'm going to gain the upper hand and there's going to be a bigger picture and there's going to be a bigger answer to man's sin than just judgment. There's going to be grace. And through the children of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? Shem, Shem is the father of the Semites. Shem is the father, great, 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 great grandfather of Abraham through which the Jewish nation was founded through which the Lord Jesus Christ himself came to die for your sins and to die for my sins. Grace, inspired by grief, has to go someplace. Which brings me to why am I talking about this in the first place? Why stop here with this particular passage of scripture? Why not just skirt around it and say, you know, somehow God was grieved and let's move on to the more important things. Let's talk about the measurements of the ark. Let's talk about all the animals that came in the ark. There's an application here. Do you ever have any anxious moments over your own sin? (laughs) Do you ever stop and pause and think about the weight of your sin in the heart of God? God grieved over the evil of mankind. My reaction sometimes seems a bit glib to me, quite frankly. Seems to me that I want to skirt past it pretty quickly. I'm happy to talk to you about your sin, but I really don't want to take time to examine my own 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I would encourage you to read that. I'm not going to put the passage on the screen. Paul has written to the Corinthians, and he's really fussed at them. He's really gotten on them. Uh, They've messed up, and they've messed up pretty big. And in the the last letter, he was kind of giving them a little bit of this. And then he writes this in response to, to their reaction. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, okay, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Do you grieve over your own sin? If you don't grieve over your sin, you're not going to grieve over the sins of your neighbors. If you don't grieve over your sin, if I don't grieve over my sin, I'm not going to care who comes to Jesus and who doesn't come to Jesus. Until I see the enormity of my own sin, until I weep over my brokenness, I will have no heart or compassion for those around me. I want you to grieve over your sin. I want me to grieve over my sin, to give it its proper weight. I'm not saying I'll always walk around and mope and cry and never be happy and never be joyful. I'm not saying that at all. But the starting point is to understand the gravity of sin. Secondly, do you grieve over the world that is bent on self-destruction? Do we weep for our neighbors who don't know Christ? Not judge them because they live a different lifestyle than us. Not attack them because they're not politically in tune with, with, with my political views. But grieve and weep because there are hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of people who woke up this morning in Kirkwood, Missouri and had no use at all to go to church. It was of no value in their lives whatsoever. It was more important, it's raining today, but they got more out of going to the golf course. They got more out of sleeping in. They got more out of reading the New York Times with a cup of coffee than to interact with the God of the universe. And part of the reason that happens is because you don't care and I don't care. We do not grieve over those whom we know who don't know Christ but God's grief moved to grace. What's the measurement of Green Tree's collective grief over a broken and dying world? Certainly it should be somewhat of an outward focus on some level, it doesn't mean that that's all of the picture of Green Tree Church. There must be an inward focus. There must be growing of disciples. We encouraged you last week to get in community groups. I can't tell you how important that is. I want you to be spiritually fed. I want to be spiritually fed. I want to be sharpened in my walk with Christ. But I also have to look outward and say, wait a minute. There's a world out there that is within my reach for whom I should grieve and therefore present the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I went to about half of the Kirkwood football game Friday night and... Um, Cindy, it's Cindy's element because she's got all the kids, and we were walking around talking to people. And then I said, I think I'm going to go home. And she went over and hung out with some more kids. And I went up and stood at the top of the stadium for about half of the third quarter, and uh, then I left and went home. But while I was standing there by myself, I just kind of had time to think. I'm looking at all these people, hundreds and hundreds of people, probably a couple thousand people at this, at this football game. And, I, you know, I don't know, maybe three, four of them were Christians. I don't know. But I looked at this mass of of, of humanity and, and high school kids and junior high school kids and and Cindy goes, it's so funny. She goes, there go the freshmen and the fr- It was like this. It was like a gaggle, <laughs> a gaggle of you know they feel safe when they're together and they're like groups of 12 freshmen walking along, you know, and uh and she knew all of them and was talking with them and and I'm sitting there looking at this group going, you know what? There have to be people in this group a group the size that don't know Jesus. Does that break my heart at all? But I say, hey, boy, Kirk would play a great football game. Kick the snot out of that other team and go home and get on my weekend. Where is my heart moving from grief to grace in an outward focus? Friends, we claim to be recipients of grace. How is that grace working out in our lives? The world desperately needs us to explain this grace to them, to show them that they don't have to live the pain and the struggle and the ramifications and the self-destruction that wickedness and sin lead to. Uh, and a few years ago, uh, the music group Train came out with this, uh, with this song. It's called, uh, the name of the song is Calling All Angels. I used it in a seminar. I was teaching with some high school kids this summer. Uh, it's a little bit outdated. It's about four years old. But listen to the, listen to the wrestling match, emotional wrestling match, that the, that the uh, songwriter is going through as he looks at the world around him. I need a sign to let me know you're here. All of these lines are being crossed over the atmosphere. I need to know that things are going to look up because I feel we're drowning in a sea spilled from a cup. When there is no place safe and no safe place to put my head, when you can feel the world shake from the words that are said, I'm calling all angels, I'm calling all angels. And then the refrain is, I won't give up if you won't give up. I won't give up if you won't give up. I need a sign to let me know you're here because my TV set just keeps it all from being clear. I want a reason for the way things have to be. I need a hand to help build up some kind of hope inside of me. When children have to play inside so they won't disappear? While private eyes solve marriage lies because we don't talk for years. In a world where, we, where what we want is only what we want until it's ours, I'm calling all angels. Calling all angels. Do you hear the despair? Do you hear the fear? Do you hear the anxiety? That person lives in a world that's filled with wickedness. There's no question about it. That's not debatable. The question is does that person live in the sphere of influence of somebody who has grieved over their own sin and grieves over the ramifications of sin in the world and allow God to take that grief and move it into an instrument of grace? So that his truth can be known and lives will be saved. Let's pray. Father, I should just stand in front of a mirror and preach this sermon. I don't like grief, I don't like to be around it. I suppress it in my own life. I want to be happy, I want to be joyful want to ignore the pain in this world. But Father, you you looked <laughs> the ramifications of sin in this world in Noah's day just as you do today. And it says that it grieved you to your heart, to the core of your being. God, I don't understand that. I don't know the extent to which you grieved, but that is a profound statement. And it says to me that that it ought to have the same impact in my life. My sin. The sin of this world ought to cause me to grieve. But Father, then you found Noah. And as we'll see next week, you saved him. But it was for a greater purpose, not just for Noah and his family. It was for the spiritual family of Green Tree this morning. And that grace is sufficient for every person that woke up around here this morning. So there's no point in going to church. Father, teach us to grieve in the the right sense of the word that we may be people of grace that have compassion